We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1974's The Parallax View, directed by Alan Pakula and written by David Geiler, Lorenzo Semple Jr., and an uncredited Robert Town. Here's a clip. We have Senator Carroll with us today to celebrate Independence Day. Sometimes I've been called too independent for my own good. Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. These people were killed, and whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. You've been asking questions about me and things you know nothing about. All I want is to stay out of it. Sorry, Mr. Tucker, you got information I need. This story's gonna mean more to me than $10,000. Fella, you don't know what this story means. First, I thought these killings were related only to the Carroll assassination. It's much bigger than that. Whoever's behind this is in the business of recruiting assassins. I think I got some of their entrance exams. We're in the business of reporting the news, not creating it. You're telling me that you alone can uncover what all these agencies couldn't? Maybe. Congratulations, Richard. You had some very interesting scores on the first series of tests for Parallax. We're prepared to offer you the most lucrative and rewarding work of your life. All right, that was a clip from the Parallax View. A conspiracy thriller. This is one to sink our teeth into, guys. Uh, joining me to talk about this 1974 classic is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? I am only here to give a big shout out to the monkey playing Pong in the movie. <laughs> That's it? You're out? All right, see you, Ricky. That's it. I'm out. That monkey did an amazing job. Uh, also joining me to talk about this is Simon Owl. Oh, hi. Hello. Uh, guys, I love conspiracy thriller movies, especially ones that get it so right about what is appealing about these movies, because too many uh, modern conspiracy movies focus in on something very, very specific. They'll either, you know, either they're made to attack a political party or or, a, or an issue of some sort, uh, you know, or a, or, a, or a corporation in a specific industry. This one to me is all just about uh, faceless authority. And I think that's what the best conspiracy thrillers are about, where they you don't really get any specifics. 
It's just that there are people out there controlling the puppet strings. Um, that is why I picked this movie. I saw this movie about a month ago for the first time. I uh, loved it. Thought it just, it, it, it's it's pulpy. It's not like, it's not, I, would, I don't know if I'm going to call it a masterpiece or not, but um, it's, it's great. <laughs> and it nails the feeling, I think. And it has some really, really cool sequences that are uh, really fun even to rewatch once you know what's going on. Um, so you guys tell me what, had, had you guys seen this movie before? Okay. And fan or no fan? It's amazing, but I need to watch Clute because I kind of feel like that's still a better film. Okay. I mean, obviously you did Clute, All the President's Men. I mean, there's, that's another great, obviously. Well, it's it's part of the, a trilogy, right? So, yeah, the first movie is Clute, 1971. The third movie is All the President's Men, released in 1976. This is the film released second, which was released in 74? Yeah, and so obviously there were a lot of these types of movies going around back then. Um, you know, the Kennedy For some reason. Yeah, exactly. Politicians like uh, that were getting knocked off like crazy. A couple of Kennedy brothers were popped, and uh, you know, people were a little suspicious of what the heck was going on here. Um, I'm not going to talk any politics. I'll leave it up to you, Patrick, because you're American. But I think that this is one of the best political thrillers of the '70s of all time. Actually, it's bitter. It's intense. It's like kind of like a fever dream. It gets experimental at times. I love the look of the film. I'm going to rave about the cinematography for the next 45 minutes. But I feel like this is a political cat and mouse chase with a really depressing, bleak, kind of like twist ending. But I think it's brilliant. It's spellbinding. I've seen it twice this week and I want to watch it again. And I had no clue that Criterion actually released this movie. So now I kind of want to buy the physical DVD or Blu-ray. Except I kind of said I would never buy any more physical copies of movies, but now I think I'm going to change my mind because I want to watch this movie again. It's amazing. Simon, you're. Uh, what about you, Ed? You seen this movie before? I somehow hadn't seen it, even though I love uh, anything to do with uh, par- paranoia, conspiracies, uh, shadow governments, evil corporations. Uh, I love all that shit. Um, mm. I, I I kind of agree with you, Patrick, in the sense that it's really more a film about capturing. Uh, the zeitgeist than it is about necessarily making a um, a specific allegation or um, or to you know t- clearly the the assassination that opens the film is modeled on RFK um, mm-hmm. and when we get to, we, we'll talk about the brainwashing sequence later but there's specific images of you know Lee Harvey Oswald uh, shows up a lot a lot of Thor yes a lot of yeah. Thor a lot, a lot of, of Thor, Thor. We'll, we'll, Thor we'll get into me, that though. I'm Thor, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, this movie actually invented the MCU. I don't know if people know that. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's a lot. They, they throw in a lot of specific signifiers of the era, but at the end of the day, it's really just about creating that sense of um, oppre- oppressiveness and uh, smallness, uh, smallness in the face of, of, of big forces, which I think is sort of the... That's maybe the unifying theme of a lot of these, especially 70s thrillers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also funny because uh, it's such a different era from now in the sense that um, in these 70s thrillers, often there's a specific lead or a specific uh, uh, a specific piece of information that uh, someone gets a hold of and they become the person with secret knowledge, right? And uh, Warren Beatty 
sort of plays that role here. Um, but uh, in a lot of these movies, you know, you, you get secret knowledge and either secret knowledge is exposed or contained. Mm-hmm. Um, and here it's like we don't even get the knowledge. Like we get some little pieces of a wider thing, but we really never get the whole picture. We don't really understand what's happening. There's a lot that could be one thing or another. Um, and at the end of the day, um, Warren Beatty's efforts. Well, we'll, we'll get into that later, but I don't know the, the, the vibe seems, I think the vibe has aged well. And, uh, I think the, the, the bones have aged well. Do I, I'm not sure if I think it's like a, I, I don't know if it's a contender for, uh, like greatest, greatest movies of the seventies or anything like quite on that level. I think it could have been improved upon in some respects, but I think there's a lot about it. That's really great. And, um, uh, certainly a lot, a lot to talk about. Greatest movies of the seventies. I mean, no, if you're going to make like a list of like the top 100, but if you specify like narrow the list down to political thrillers, I think this is on the list. Oh yeah, for sure. It's it's a super solid movie, no matter what. And it's very entertaining. So it's, it's one of those thrillers that just, uh, I think can appeal to everybody. It does kind of hook you and pulls you along at a good clip. It's not a very long movie and it doesn't get bogged down in politics, which is one of the things that I think, has made it age so well is that it keeps things very vague and it just goes after power it doesn't go after anything specific that's what can date a movie or or make it go out of vogue but power will always be something that people are suspicious of hopefully and that's why this movie can can play to any audience i think at any time do you have any movies in mind of like things that you think haven't aged well for that reason um, I, I'm thinking more of like early 2000s movies. When, uh, uh, when I was talking, thinking of recent political movies, I you know, Lions for Lambs. And, oh, well, uh, yeah, know, the, the Iraq War those, era didn't produce like, like any good movies. No, it did not. And because they were so specific, they didn't go after what the root cause of some of what their issues were. Um, I know that all the President's Men is very specific. It is a very good movie, and it's not dated. It's more like a hit, because, but, but it's based on real life. It's not a fictional thing. Yeah, it's so. more like a docudrama. Yeah, so I don't, I don't really count that movie. Um, I'd have to, I'd have to sit and think about it. But I know that I've seen some where I, I thought like, ah, eh, okay, that hasn't held up so well anymore because this particular conspiracy theory just doesn't really. Yeah. Nobody's really I, into this anymore. I, I mean, I would say that even in the context of this movie, um, the internal logic of the conspiracy and like what they can and can't see or do is a little. You know, you could you could certainly pick at it if you felt like it. Oh, there's plot. I mean, there's there's what could be considered plot holes in this movie, but and in yes, the actual powers, like how just how much stuff do these people have their fingers in? Uh, yeah, you could absolutely pick at that. But the the general sense of what he's fighting, he isn't fighting any particular specific thing. He's not fighting an oil company or you know the cigarette makers or you know anything like that. He's fighting. Uh, not a nameless because they're called the parallax corporation but sort of nameless faceless what do they do exactly we don't really know that we we know that they're supposed to be recruiting assassins but that never really it doesn't seem to add up the way that the whole recruiting process works we still don't like you said we don't really understand exactly what it is they do and that adds to it it's not really a conspiracy because we know this evil organization exists. We see throughout the film, we see them assassinating people. It's more about who are they? So the mystery is who's in charge, who are these people? But it's not a conspiracy because it's clear as day that 
there is something going on here. Yeah, so I it it is a conspiracy. I mean, in a sense, it's just that we don't actually see what's going on behind it. Like we the we the audience know that there's something going on there, but the characters don't actually know that there's anything going on. The world in general doesn't know that anything's going on. And that's kind of every conspiracy theorist like uh, worst nightmare and and best dream right because they want to uncover this thing that nobody else ever knows about but it's been being covered up by the super powerful people who again and we don't even know who these like the parallax corporation yeah we know that they exist but who are they are they a government body it doesn't seem like it are they just a private business that 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 recruits assassins to and they 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 hire them out to whatever political bodies around the world want to kill off somebody they never get into that at all They, they we don't even know and and at one point he says he he doesn't have any evidence that the government's even covering anything up like with the assassination of the, the assassination of the senator at the beginning but it's pretty clear that they are covering something up and we'll get to that when it comes to cinematography later but i i mean in the in the same i i mean it is absolutely a conspiracy there's no question we don't we don't necessarily know who all the players are but it is absolutely i mean they are covering up uh, massive amounts i mean they're killing dozens of people just to cover some shit up it is 100% a conspiracy but uh, the nature of the conspiracy, you're right. We don't know the uh, my get. If I had to guess what the intent, if the, if they had an intention, or if there is something to be gleaned from the novel that this is based on, all that all the conspiracy means is people scheming to do a thing. That's yeah. all it means. Three, three, three or more people conspiring to do something, and this is just a conspiracy theory. Right? Conspiracy theory is that you you cannot prove that these people are doing this thing, but you believe that they're doing it. But this it. isn't like, you know, like a conspiracy theory where people are saying like 5G towers are spreading COVID-19 and it's very specific where they say it's the government, the new world order, whatever it is, 5G sure. spreading a virus. You know what I mean? Like it's no. kind of like a bunch of people are getting assassinated, but we don't have a specific idea of who they are. The conspiracy is that there is this company out there that's recruiting assassins and training ordinary people to be assassins to take out political leaders. That's the conspiracy. Right. right but there. the point I was trying to make before is that that's what makes it universal and timeless because they don't specify a specific group of people. The, you yes. know what I mean? Like, like if they were actually oh, yeah. make a movie about the JFK assassination, which we've seen many of, including one from Oliver yeah. Stone, that yeah. narrows down who's causing what, who's doing what. And that could be quickly dated with information that gets revealed within time. But I, I, I do think it's important, though, that it's a corporation. Um, I think that's a specific choice because, um, you know, this is the era where, I mean, not only do we have all these assassinations happening, but we have, um, you know, increased financialization and people becoming really alienated from what whatever market forces means. And I think the kind of the impression I get of, of this conspiracy, the glimpses that we get, it's sort of like a public private partnership. Like there's there does seem to be some kind of communication between larger forces and this uh, and this parallax company. They don't seem to be operating independently. But again, we really don't know. Like by the only reason it doesn't I, I think that it that uh, it doesn't satisfy Ricky's uh, concept of what a conspiracy theory is, is because Warren Beatty doesn't even learn enough to piece something coherent together. No, and that's something I want to talk about, especially when you uh, when I saw this movie the second time. The script is very thin. <laughs> like, yeah. This is basically a tiny, tiny amount of lore or plot or however you want to do it or story um, centered around set pieces. 
set pieces take up the vast majority of the yeah. time in this film and and actual information takes up very little when it does happen it's very interesting and that that propels the movie forward for sure and keeps the conspiracy theory uh feel the vibe alive uh because you do get these little tidbit tidbits where he is talking to a guy from the Parallax Corporation and their conversations are interesting. Or he, he goes and visits a, a I, I don't know if he's a psychologist, but he's clearly a, a researcher who's looking at the brains of, you know, chimpanzees and serial killers. <laughs> um, little little things like that, the questionnaire, and of course his his visit to the the actual corporation itself, the recruitment facility, is those are all very interesting. But this movie does not give you much at all. It doesn't give you reasons why anybody is being taken out, why these politicians are going after, except that they're independent, right? So there's there's another thing you can glean from it, Simon, like what this movie's view on politics is. The ones being killed are the independent ones, right? Mm-hmm. That don't fall in line with any of the parties. I was gonna I was going to ask you guys if you think that this is a good screenplay, because it's three weeks in a row now, we review a movie in which the script is not finished when they start production or pre-production on the film. And so I love the movie and I actually like the screenplay, but does it make it a really good screenplay if the screenplay is so, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's bare bones. It's bare it's bare bones, bones, but not just bare bones. It's so open-ended that it could be mm. just about anyone and anything. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think that it's, it's bare bones, uh, to use my own word that I just used. And I'm now about to argue with myself about in the sense that they, they get by on almost as little dialogue as possible. I think, um, it really is, um, as Patrick said, action focused, um, which, which lends the movie a really weird, um, pacing uh, tone balance where like it goes from like Dukes of Hazard style car chases (laughs) to like, to like the slowest speed on, on foot pursuits of like any Hollywood film. Um, but, um, but I still think there's, there's enough sort of floating around thematically for you to pick from that. It doesn't feel completely formless and open-ended. Like another thing that, that I think is both universal and very specific to the period is this aspect of like psychology, trying to understand the human brain, trying to figure out if people are programmable, trying to figure out um, why people behave the way they do. This is another sort of major through line of uh, other 70s thrillers. I mean, obviously Manchurian Candidate is a big one, but there's loads of examples. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's I think there's lots going on in the screenplay, actually, but it's it's uh, it's relatively chill about uh, about imparting that stuff to you. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned the fact that Warren Beatty's character just just so happens to be a reporter. Because I think that's really important, especially nowadays in 2021, the fact that it's about the press trying to uncover the truth. You know what I mean? Like, because a lot of conspiracy theories now revolve around the press, fake news, et cetera, et cetera. And here in the movie, Warren Beatty's character is a news reporter. And not just a news reporter that works for some big, huge publication like the New York Times. He works for some, like, small newspaper, like, in the middle of, like, nowhere. Like, they even mentioned the newspaper at one point in the, in the movie. And I'm like, I've never heard of this place. Yeah, this is back when every single backwater newspaper could uh, could have like a full time investigative reporter on staff because there was so much like money in newspapers. Who, by the way, is drop dead gorgeous and can like kick ass in a bar fight. Oh, I, I love the, the actually the most nineteen seventy four thing about this movie is that Warren Beatty plays an everyman. An everyman? How is he an everyman? The dude's like the dude's money. 
Um, uh, he's yeah. he's what every man wanted to be. He's a guy yes. that like there's a there's a woman that just comes out of his bedroom in one scene and just walks right off without saying anything to him. While another woman comes into his apartment or his motel room, I should say, he kicks ass at a bar. He can drive a car over. He can jump a car. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know he's just he's he's fearless. He he's willing to get on a plane and stop a bomb threat and never breaks a sweat. As far as like he's on the plane that the bomb could potentially blow up and the guy doesn't break a sweat and keeps his cool. That was a great um, touch when he tries to write on the washroom window that there's a bomb on the plane, which is like the stupidest thing you could do. And he opens the door and there's someone about to walk in. He's like, okay, I got, I got to close no, the this door. Is a bad idea. Go back. Erase, erase <laughs> what I wrote. Bad idea. Um, I think it's about time that we start raving about Gordon Willis, who's maybe one yes. of the greatest cinematographers ever, if not the greatest cinematographer of the 70s for American movies. This is the dude who shot the Godfather trilogy, for example. His framing and lighting is incredible. It's so mysterious. The images feel cryptic and moody. I love how he uses silhouettes. He doesn't move the camera much in this movie, but when he moves it, he moves it with purpose. I like how he uses mostly wide frames. Then he punctuates these wide shots with close-ups when needed. Like it's like every camera shot is chosen and used for with a specific specific purpose and reason, right? Um, there's just so many unforgettable sequences. Patrick, when you ask me what my favorite movie is, I think my I'm sorry, when you ask me what my favorite scene is, I think my brain's gonna explode because there's so many great scenes in this movie. And I just I don't know. Like, I love the way he uses the wide angled lens. Like, it's an anamorphic lens. And so it makes every single, like, like if you freeze frame this movie, every single shot is beautiful. Like, you're going to get an amazing freeze frame that you can use as a screensaver. And I love the way he uses a shallow focus, the way he blurs the image, especially at the beginning. You know, like, when the, um, when the senator gets shot, right? The senator is framed behind the glass, behind the window. The camera's outside. And we see the senator because he's behind the window, but it's like he plays with the focus, differential focus, right? The background, foreground, middle ground. And mm -hmm. then he gets shot and the blood splatters on the window. And it's like, this is a character who should be center and in frame because he's a senator. He's getting assassinated. This is like how the movie starts. It all revolves around this first assassination. And instead he keeps him behind the window but that's the thing about the movie it's all about mystery we never really know what's going on so the way he frames the movie i feel like he's always keeping us the audience off kilter like we're always at the edge of our seat and we're always looking for clues and it works that 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 assassination at the beginning of the movie is what i i, I thought okay I, i'm into this thing now that shocked me i i just wasn't i didn't see it coming and i love that feeling in a movie you just you get it so rarely these days it feels like and yeah, I, I just didn't see it coming right then. I mean, you, you always know that the, the scene is building towards something, but I didn't really know what. I didn't read a lot about this movie. I sort of had a vague idea of what it was about, but I like to go in as, you know, fresh as possible. And yeah, I was like, whoa, what the hell was that? It's done so well. Patrick, but, uh, the first shot, like right away, had me. It's like it had yeah. me with the first shot. I'm all about the visuals, as you well know. And oh, you get sure. the Native American totem pole, and then the camera dollies and cranes to reveal the Space Needle. So now I know I'm in Seattle. This is the Space Needle, and well, and the totem pole is a great thing to to start with. I well, mean... it's a, it's an interesting way to symbolize 
the old world, the new world. I'm not I'm not entirely sure what it's trying to say here, but it creates it's, it's this hierarchy. Thing. Yes, yeah. yes. We're 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 on the low end, and there are people up on the high end of the totem pole. <laughs> but it right away creates tension and a sense of paranoia. There's just uh, two quick script things I want to say about that opening um, with uh, with the assassination. One of them is that um, another thing that dates this movie, but in an interesting way, uh, is that this is one of the last eras before uh, Americans became completely cynical and rightfully so about the media. Um, and that's why, you know, obviously all the president's men that comes later, but here, like journalists are sort of presented, although imperfect as sort of like the last arbiters of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would absolutely, you wouldn't see that now. You just wouldn't, it would have to be, uh, someone even more independent than a journalist. The second thing is I love, um, there's not a lot of overt characterization in terms of relationships, but I really, really like what they do in the intro with, with him having that, uh, not being able to get in, having that little exchange with, um, with the woman who of course later ends up dead and sort of getting a sense uh, very quickly of what the dynamic is there. And also informing us that this guy is not, uh, he's not a heavy hitter in the world of journalism and he is going to get shut out of things. Um, I don't know, just a, a really smart economical screenwriting there. It, it it also sets up that they know each other because that's going to be important later on when she comes to his hotel room. If she had just come to his hotel room and they didn't have some sort of interaction, you yeah, because, would have because, no idea yeah. what was going on. Yeah, because she's, she's his link to the events inside. I yes. also like the way the movie's sort of bookended by the sequence in which we have I'm not entirely sure what you call them. The, uh, the the seven men sitting at the table, like the board of directors. Yes. So there's there seven dudes. They're, they're a committee. The committee is and sitting in front of like the giant wooden desk and the camera pushes in slowly. It starts with this really, really, really far shot. And the opening sequence, the, the seven men basically announced that, look, there is no conspiracy. We found no evidence that proves that the assassination of the senator is based on a conspiracy, yada, yada, yada. We get the score, which is very subtle. It's a lot of horns that the composer uses, which makes it feel more tense. And then we have the scene at the end of the film. It repeats again. And it's almost, it's almost, it's, it's similar, but not the same, right? They once again, you know, they pretty much cover up like the fact that there is this evil corporation that exists. So it's like this really, interesting way to bookend the film again it's not really bookended because it's not the first scene but it is technically the second scene so that's close enough right um yeah and and michael small's score is it's just always playing with our expectations like us the viewer and i just think that it really adds to the ambience and the atmosphere like a thick layer of unease when i watch this movie like it just like oh man this movie's so good it's so moody the uh Speaking of the music, uh, really love uh, the use of music in the film. I love the music in the uh, in the in the um, test sequence, and I really loved uh, when we get to the closing. Uh, the Warren Beatty's closing sequence, put it that way, uh, and we and we start to hear uh, marching band music, very patriotic sounding marching band music piping in, and we and I at first th- thought, okay, like they're they're goosing the soundtrack a little bit to make to really uh, to really underscore the cynical vibe and then it's like a few shots later it's like no this is actually diegetic there's a whole fucking marching band in here yeah and no, i just it, I, I love stuff like that it works really well i think there's a nice little positive tinge to the score as well it gives you some hope even though there yeah, is yes. none. <laughs> and that's throwing you off as well because 
you know, up until the end, I, I mean, we, we can spoil this. I don't really see that. Why not? But up until the end, we, I thought that Warren Beatty was going to make it. I really did. I, I didn't, I guess I wasn't quite as prepared for the cynicism of the seventies to take over. <laughs> But I, I just because of the score, because of the like you mentioned, the Dukes of Hazard music during the car chase, there was a slight positive edge to him. Like this, this couldn't end up, you know, depressing and soul crushing. Uh, but it does, and you know, that's it's appropriate. Nineteen seventy four for you, and it's appropriate for the film, and it's you know what, it's it's appropriate for a conspiracy theory movie. Because for a paranoia movie, it's not just him that dies. It's basically anyone who has any sort of knowledge of the conspiracy. Jim Cronin. I mean, his mm. his boss. His like, editor, who does a great job as friends, boss? Everyone. But I love the way it ends when he's running towards the open door, and we get that bright white light shining, right? And then all of a sudden, talk about a twist: a shadowy figure appears out of nowhere to block his escape. Pulls out a gun, gunshot, boom, he's dead unbelievable ending i love the way the camera dollies back into the darkness man i mean it's not just about the cinematography and the lighting in that scene it's just about the fact that it's so unexpected the fact that they actually killed warren Beatty's character at the very end like our our hero never gets to open the door where the light is he never gets to even expose the truth you know (laughs) exposed but also also get answers like he's still left like he he's left unsatisfied like he goes down still not knowing what he wants to know no and it's it's so important also that the entire climax uh takes place with this sort of uh this this uh this is it's he's running for senate for the senate um uh, what is he running for again doesn't matter senator there's a yeah. pol- there's a politician rehearsing a speech or rather rehearsing along to a speech he's not even talking uh, so there's already this act of theater, political theater happening, or even just a preparation for theater. But everything that happens that we care about uh, is happening up in the, the, I guess, the rafters. What would you mm-hmm. call those? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's all taking place like it's it's literally telling you what's really happening is up here above what you can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Warren Beatty sneaks into that elite uh, territory of truth and knowledge and revelation, but he can't make it out. Right, exactly. He was never meant to go there, and uh, now they're going to have to get rid of him. And he was a patsy all along. They kind of allowed him into this thing. I, 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 it could be a little confusing, I think, as to when they actually get onto him. And that's another thing the movie's never really clear about. And a lot of movies would have had this dramatic moment where the audience realizes that the bad guys are now onto the hero. Um, this doesn't really have that. I'm not really. Uh, you could watch this movie over and over again, and I'm not sure you'd ever really know when they caught on to his scheme. But it is clear that at the end they are setting him up, and that is obvious because they watch him walk by, and and his uh, his handler kind of smiles, knowing what's about to happen. Yeah, uh, they have uh, a rifle there for him, and there's a lot happening in the background, and I love the the transitions in the movie. Like, okay, not my favorite scene, but maybe my second favorite scene. You want to talk about incredible transitions so there's a sequence in which we basically see a sit-down interview with warren Beatty's character with the evil corporation and then it smoothly seamlessly transitions to warren Beatty's characters the editor-in-chief right so we get the editor-in-chief bill 
and he's listening to the interviews with Parallax and Beatty's character. What is Beatty's character's name again? It's um, Joe, Joe Grady is his Grady. real name. Right. So with Grady. So he's listening to the interviews with Parallax and Grady. Uh, Frady. It's Frady. 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 Sorry, not Grady. Frady. Yeah. <laughs> Which was secret, secretly recorded. So the editor's listening to these interviews. And then we get this delivery man who shows up at his office and brings him his lunch. Right. We right away know that it's the dude from the opening, and we right away know that this dude's going to get poisoned. And so the editor-in-chief does indeed get poisoned. And then there's a transition. Like, he drinks the coffee and starts eating his lunch, and then we get a transition as the camera pans across his office, and we see the images, the pictures of him, his life, right? Like, the pictures of his of his crowning achievements, his accomplishments, whatever. And then when the camera finally stops panning, we get to Crone, the editor-in-chief. He's dead in his chair. But it's interesting because the pictures represent the memories of his life and the way the camera moves in a transition between those three scenes. It's like from beginning to end. And then you get, once again, the incredible musical score. So it's such an emotional moment. Mm. But in it's all it's it all works because of what's done in post-production. Like they needed to film those three sequences and they did a good job in filming them, but it only works because of the way they edit those three scenes back to back with those beautiful seamless transitions. It's amazing. And I think it's really important that uh, Hume Cronin's character, the editor is the only one. He's the only character I think who gets sort of an emotional send off. And I think that's also the movie telling you once again, that the only body it has any investment in is the press. (laughs) It, 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 obviously back then this was right after the Woodward and Bernstein thing it was or at yeah. least very it was right around it um, yo you know what I found really weird though the airplane sequence like I really like it and I like how it also shows the difference between airports back in the 70s compared to 2021 like you just can't just jump on an airplane nowadays I know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah and pay when you get on board. You That's so fucking you... baller. So baller. In the actual airplane, like everyone's so happy. Like everyone's like having conversation and drinks. It's Smoking like, it looks like cigarettes. A big, and... Yeah, it looks like a big huge party, man. Yeah. Nowadays you go on an airplane and people are like punching each other. You dread oh. being on the plane for the next three hours. Yeah, there it was like everybody's excited. Hey, we're going somewhere. We're on this plane. Also, I like how the stewardess gets the note finally that says that there's a bomb in the plane and she casually goes to speak to the captain and the captain's like he he announces that they're going to turn around because of technical problems and no one complains everyone's like okay well and also this was the era when planes were getting blown up and hijacked like every other day so i think honestly yeah i mean there's so many fucking hijackings happening in In the the 70s? 70s sorry in the 70s Yes, yeah, so many there were so many plane hijackings that like a lot of plane go go listen to the dollop about this but like they even had uh like planes they they had maps to uh maps to Havana in many cases just hanging around in case they got hijacked. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Because it was yeah, it was the it was the pre-airport security era. It was just the the, the way that they thought about security and their business was calculated in a different way. I don't know, man. It seems like a fun way to me. Life life looked pretty <laughs> cool back then. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Look at the way Warren Beatty lived his life in this movie. Tell me, he, that... he, he's sort of an anarchist almost. He's just kind he of is. like he he lives. Honestly, the least realistic thing about this movie is just Warren Beatty's character generally. Like he's <laughs> he's a he's a bit of what audiences would today call a Mary Sue. 
Um, except for the fact, of course, that he doesn't succeed. Right. Yes. He's he thinks he's smarter than he really is, and that that becomes apparent in the end that he thought he had this whole thing under control, but he did yeah. not. Well, that that's sort of the another thing that makes the movie quite grim is that even Warren Beatty, you know, six two, glowing locks of hair, good at everything, um, you know, out seemingly outsmarts every steals a fucking cop car, like mm-hmm. you know, and even he, the the greatest of us, is powerless in the face of the conspiracy. Yeah, I like it when he shows up at the editor in chief's office and he thinks he's dead, and then he just very casually says, "Here's what I want you to do for me. I want you to write." Uh, what, what did he ask for? He basically wanted him... in a bit. He wanted a he wanted a will written out so that uh, the chief, the uh, editor in chief would be the executor of his estate. So that he could make a big show of donating all of his stuff to charity or something. Exactly. Make a big show of the fact that he's dead. So he actually appears to be dead. So he basically, he wants to live like a dead man, of which he does at one point in the film because everyone thinks he's dead. And just just like the way he strolls into the office and makes that request. He's so cool, collected, calm. Like, ah, he's great. I love him. Uh, All right. We should probably wrap up this early discussion and get around to some more specific stuff in our second half. But before we do that, here's another clip from the Parallax View. You're enjoying yourself, aren't you? You gotta admit, it's funny. It makes me laugh. But I don't think it's funny. <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? Have you ever laughed at a comedian when he pretended to stutter? There's nothing funny about a man who stutters, but people laugh. They're amused. But they're not happy about it. going to print it not only am i not going to print it but this is the end of your series on local drug problems we're in the business of reporting the news not creating it joe joe we went through all this six years ago when i agreed to take you back in january i made two suggestions one was about your drinking well you seem to have licked that The other was that you curb your talent for creative irresponsibility. You can start working on that right now. You're really tired, aren't you? Joe. Go home. Go to a movie. Relax. Come back tomorrow and do a nice dull piece on the parks and recreation hearings. That is, if you feel this job is interesting enough to stick with it. All right, that was another clip from the Parallax View, uh, di- again, directed by Alan Pakula. And uh, we are at the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. We do like to get pretty specific. We like to stay positive for this first one, though. Rick, what's your favorite scene from the Parallax View? Okay, so there's one sequence in which the main character, played by Warren Beatty, goes on a yacht, like a mini yacht, like a boat, with mm-hmm. two gentlemen, right? The sequence is just like fantastic because it's very calm. They're just like chilling in this like boat. They intercut these black and white photographs of these two men 
And then they show like a far shot of like the boat out in the sea. And then they show close-ups of what they're doing on the boat. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, it goes from like having a bit of dialogue and a bit of music to just no dialogue, no music, just a boat out in the middle of the ocean. And you just hear the sound of the ocean. And Warren Beatty is at the far edge of the boat. The two men are talking. They're whispering. We got a far shot of them whispering. We don't know what they're saying. Warren Beatty's looking at them. He's wondering, what are they saying? It's all mysterious. And all of a sudden, bam, the boat explodes. <laughs> Just a boat fucking explodes. Warren Beatty goes flying off the boat. Like Great the most, stunt, by the way. The most yeah. unexpected shot sequence of the entire film. And wow, wow. Like, talk about playing with your 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 images the framing of the shots the sound like playing with specifically with the sound like like the shot of those two dudes whispering from a distance and we get the point of view shot of warren Beatty's character like to me that's just a, a master class of directing and to me that shot signified that he was not part of their clique he was not one of them that even though he was trying to find all this stuff out and they were letting him into their world for a little while that at the end like he has to go sit off separate from them and they're going to have their own little conversation because they were on the inn that that character was the advisor to the senator who was assassinated at the beginning of the movie and he clearly knows things um and he's just trying to stay in hiding uh you know out on his boat away from the away from the world clearly somebody's after him but yeah i always got the sense of like i love that how Beatty is isolated at the front like he's still not part of this world he's just he's still trying to to read lips to to figure out what's going on almost uh simon what about you what is your favorite scene ricky already mentioned it but i'm i'll say a couple more things about it the scene on the flight as soon as he gets on the flight and then everything that happens on it and until he's off uh that's i think maybe my single favorite chunk of the movie because um i mean there's lots of good scenes lots of good sequences but i really love how much he does with so little uh the moment that ricky mentioned where he scrawls out that message and then says ah fuck that's nah, a bad idea um wonderful there I, I wish the movie actually had more of that i wish the movie had more of him kind of bumbling a bit you know trying things having them not work doing something else because a lot of the time he's quite preternaturally just sort of capable. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, that long, slow scene of him thinking, actually the, this, this napkin idea is, has, has legs. Uh, let's do that instead. And also that way I can just kind of sit and look cool while I watch <laughs> it play out instead of looking like a fucking maniac in a bathroom. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, for so much of the movie, um, it's Gordon Willis is the uh, is the DP. Mm -hmm. uh, Gordon Willis has these big exteriors and or wide interiors to play with. He doesn't have that here. He's, he has the narrow confines of an airplane. Uh, so what is he? So he kind of just flexes instead. And so he'll, he has that wonderful shot where he's trailing behind or in front of the uh, the drinks cart. And he's just kind of slowly panning from one aisle to the other aisle and then back and forth in the, in this uh, rhythmically consistent fashion. That's like almost relaxing. <laughs> and it's, it's, you're, it's kind of a, there's kind of a narcotic uh, element to that sequence where it's like, you're, 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 you're up here in the chill zone of an airplane. Everything's fine. You're under control. He's showing You've off got the this. having a good time. Who's in the left aisle. Who's in the right aisle. And yeah. so it plays into 
building the tension and the suspense because you're trying to figure out if someone's on the plane that's actually going to blow up the plane. Earlier, they show the shots of the luggage being put into the plane. And and so, like, that sequence, by the way, Simon, is like, I mean, that shot, it's like one of my favorite shots. Like, maybe not oh, the so sequence, good. but the actual shot. Like, because the camera is placed directly waist level in front of Warren Beatty's character. So because it's waist level, we get to see the the people who are sitting in the plane because it pans, like you said, it pans back and forth, left to right to see who's sitting in the plane. And it, it's like it's like you said, it's like you're in such a tight space and yet he finds the most effective long take to to like like because it's like this is when he goes to the washroom by the way to write the, the message on on the on the on the mirror yeah and so he's it's like the camera the way the camera is panning left and right it's like it's we're supposed to think who in this who who out of all these passengers is suspicious like who do we think could be for example a suicide bomber but the real the most suspicious person in the plane is actually warren Beatty's character yeah um, well, I also, I, I, the last thing I wanted, I wanted to say this when you were talking about the boat sequence, Ricky, shout out to the screenwriters for including multiple scenes of danger on, on danger on vehicular craft in extreme places, because, uh, one of the, one of people's favorite things to do in the seventies was mysteriously die in small boat and plane accidents. <laughs> uh, so that's also a very seventies thing. We get the car, the car chase, we get the yeah. boat exploding. We get the, the air, uh, well, the plane does explode, right? No, no, no. The, the, it does. The, the, it the just, no, no. Doesn't the truck explode? I thought the plane did on the ground. I thought that's why they didn't show it. They don't actually show what explodes, but I assumed it was the plane because they didn't have the budget to blow a plane up. I yeah, or anything. They yeah, they they use their explode. They use their one explosion on the boat, which was a good choice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you just get like this massive camera shake, and I assumed that was because the plane blew up uh, with everybody off of it. Everybody was safe, but uh, but it still blew up. It, it, there, there's a lot of cool shots in this movie, and Rick, you had brought up the the like the, the long lenses that, that uh, Willis uses. To me, those are those are fantastic. I've always loved that look, and uh, I was gonna say the damn the damn sequence is my one of my favorite for just how things look. I love when the damn bursts because it's symbolic, mm. but it also is just a it's an epic, cool-looking shot that is not in an epic movie. I, it doesn't, and it's not made out to be some epic moment. But I love the shot of him standing in the river, wading through the the muck, uh, with the sheriff sort of above him and the dam bursts open. Just a just a great shot. I'm not going to say that that's my favorite scene for the movie. It's just one of my favorite shots, and that was that's a shot that sticks out of my mind when I think about this movie. I'm telling you, man, the shallow focus in this film is amazing. Like the way he uses that technique, I love it. And again, the silhouettes and framing people behind closed doors, behind windows, behind curtains. So shallow good. depth of field also is just one of those cool things that I wish people used a little more these days. Just very stylish. Uh, um, pa Patrick, since you brought up the uh, the quarry dam sequence. Uh, one tip, uh, tip, if you're ever, uh, at the base of a dam pointing a gun at, uh, at, at, at uh, <laughs> at Beatty, um, shoot him right after you toss him his lunch. He'll, he'll, he won't know where to go. His hands will be occupied. He'll be standing still. That's how you should have done it. Exactly. Uh, and but, don't um, also don't stand within fishing rod length. Yeah, that, exactly. Um, yeah. Classic, classic blunders. Uh, by local law enforcement, uh, but, the, but also I, I I didn't mention it, but I sort I almost made it my favorite scene. Shout out to that ridiculous fucking bar fight sequence. Uh, I know that begins with drinking milk. 
Oh uh, yeah, that's that's good stuff. Uh, also, we we get a little bit of uh, of seventies of um, like questionable. Um, how can I put this? Uh, so, someone making sort of a an inference about uh, about Beatty's sexuality based on his appearance, which probably happened probably once per movie, or at least his masculinity. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, that 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 stuff always seemed to happen back in because he's drinking milk. I think I don't even think it was because of his appearance. I think it's because he was drinking ordered milk, and that's a common trope in movies like if somebody walks into a, i mean think of the departed when he gets a yeah, yeah, yeah. Juice. like for some reason that's this thing if you walk into a bar and you don't order a whiskey <laughs> like yeah, how many you, westerns yeah. have had that by the way <laughs> yeah you 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 failed the masculinity test what's wrong with you i was watching shane the other night and like yeah they, he orders like a, a pop right he orders a soda pop or a sarsaparilla in the bar and First thing that happens, oh, you don't drink whiskey, boy. You must be some kind of wussy, you know, something like that. So that's been going on forever. That's just some, that's yeah. a funny trope. But I thought in this case, milk was a good choice. Um, I, My favorite scene, I love the opening because of the way it caught me off guard. I love the buildup. I love the all the little 70s filmmaking details where the reporter, I mean, granted, you, you were talking about reporters being the heroes in this. She's <laughs> this movie dating itself. Like the way the reporter gushes over a politician made me cringe. Mm. Like her saying like, this guy is the greatest. And he's almost like, you're a reporter. <laughs> and here you are, you're handing this dude like his own publicity for free. Um, but regardless of that, I loved the, the sort of the interview with the, the aide, um, just sort of the, the way they talk over each other and, the overlapping dialogue, I, I liked the, the interruptions. It all felt super, super natural, and it lulled me into mm. this into this rhythm of just watching this party and what was going on, and Beatty trying to get in, and that little comic misplay of her saying, nope, he's not with me, and all of that just seemed kind of nice and light, and all they're getting to that, boom! This guy's brains are all over <laughs> this window. Uh, it's a fantastic like buildup. I, I felt shades of Robert Altman in that opening sequence, especially with the overlapping dialogue and having all of these characters just somehow be very natural, maybe not reading off the script, but just kind of like winging it. Um, it's it's an amazing opening to a movie. You're talking about a movie that has an incredible opening, making a good first impression and a really kick-ass ending, leaving a really good lasting uh, positive impression on the viewer. And and I think that sequence does something the movie does a few times where like, I mean, maybe it's just me, but that se- that opening sequence contains no suspense. Like it it's not it's not about mounting suspense. It's just showing you a bunch of things one after the other, establishing a scene. It's very casual. Uh, it establishes confusion and yeah. and curiosity. Yes, but yeah, if you d- and and if you know what the movie's about, you you do kind of expect okay something's going to happen. But if you don't know. It's a very it's an, it's an almost calm opening. Oh yeah, the plane just blew up in the background. Sorry, I'm watching the movie as we're doing the podcast, and yeah, you're right, Patrick. We just see the camera shake for like about forty five seconds, but it is the plane, Simon. It has to be the plane that gets. Yeah, the, I, I think because the camera shakes so much, I think it has to be the plane. If yeah. it was just a, a luggage cart, then I don't think they. Would yeah, I, I I I I think I got confused because uh, we do see the truck pass in that direction. So I was yes. Like, oh, this flew up. Yeah. There anyway. Is a truck. Yes. Um, but what I was going to say is that I think that's also sort of what it's doing in the sequence on the plane, where um, things are happening, but but the vibe is not excitable it's not you know you you don't have straight high strings coming in and goosing up the suspense none of that is happening 
And you get a little play out of what's going to happen at the end, by the way, where you've got a guy who is essentially a patsy who's now running for his life. And it made me rethink of exactly what happened in the film. And I think one of the, they, they, they show you several different waiters and then they show you a guy running, right? Yeah. And you assume he must be the one that shot the senator. But then when you go back and watch the movie after you've seen the end, now you wonder, did he shoot the senator? And he ends up dying, of course, because you can't have somebody like that still be alive. He falls off the space needle uh, with a with a great like stage yell. Uh. <laughs> but, but now I, I when I originally saw that, of course, my mind, I did not question for a second that he was the shooter. I, I, I knew that there were two two people there that were working together, but I assumed that they were both in on it. Well, the guy is running, so he has to be in on it. He's guilty. If you're running, you're guilty, especially if you're running to like the top of the the space needle. That's that's the that's the key there, Rick. If you're running, are you guilty? Warren Beatty's running in the end. Yeah, but why would and the he waiter was not be guilty. running? Like he's running because people said there he is. There's the shooter, and he knew what was happening. He was being set look, up. If he's not partially guilty, then he's really stupid. Well, yeah, Warren, I mean, Beatty, Warren Beatty is kind of stupid in a sense. Ex- ex- but I mean, it shows you that a guy—that's that's the that's the the danger, right, of these conspiracies. Like that, any a little person can get sucked up into them, and there's no way to prove that you're not guilty or you're not insane or you're not whatever that they're saying that you are because they're so powerful and they've they've done things so perfectly. So yeah, I think going back and reseeing it, it had a little bit of that. I, I kind of wonder what happened, and I think that's why they never really show you. They just show you from the outside the center's head, you know, blood exploding out of the window. But we have no idea who fired the shot or what was really going on there or what they told that waiter or whether he, whether he did fire the shot. Maybe, yeah, maybe he did. the senator shot himself. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't believe the conspiracy <laughs> theories. It's just a bunch of people trying to make you believe things. that's not true. There you go. See, Rick's, Rick's too woke for this movie. I mean, the, <laughs> the, um, Patrick, you kind of skipped over some of my favorite bits of staging in uh, in that chase sequence on top of the Space Needle. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which is just I love the way that the camera is totally unmoving for quite a while as we watch these guys run around on this not very runaroundable space. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the way that the man like kind of goes to the ground, like goes to the to, to the railing, tumbles and falls off is so casual. Like there is, yes, that little scream, but also just the way the two guys who are chasing him just kind of like just kind of hang back for a second just, just like, like well that happened it's like yep well all right and that's actually see like the i think actually the funniest moment in the whole movie <laughs> but to me it also lends credence to the fact that they might have always intended to like throw this guy off the building or something I, it does seem like an accident like it wasn't he wasn't intended yeah. oh yeah to it, it suits them fine that yeah it happened for yep, sure they're totally cool with it whatever they whatever they just needed him to be dead eventually, and that's what happened. <laughs> They've got $25,000 to, to cash in, you know? They're, they don't care how it happens. Hey, so um, since nobody chose it, I think now's a good time to talk about the montage sequence because it's yes. one of the most famous scenes in the movie. It's not my favorite scene in the movie, but I understand why it's so famous. Mm-hmm. So basically, we get the sequence in, in which Warren Beatty's character enters the headquarters of the Parallax organization, he sits down in a chair and he's all in silhouette and it's just like this far shot and then basically he's forced to look at a montage of images which is edited to like this music and it's like images of like parents and kids and pies and uh, american monuments and nazis and thor for some reason thor re- reappears like three times and it's erotic three. and three 
He's he's in there like multiple times. times. Yeah, twenty. And we get words like love and God, and it, it's just this weird montage, which a lot of people have compared to uh, the sequence in two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey, the brainwashing scene, but also the Stargate sequence in two. Uh, sorry. The brainwashing scene in A Clockwork Orange and the Stargate sequence in 2001 A Space Odyssey. So basically, like, think of those two Stanley Kubrick uh, scenes and blend them together. And you get this five-minute experimental sequence that's just put inside this Hollywood political thriller, which is really odd, but really cool. Um, I wasn't blown away by the sequence, to be totally honest. I'm not entirely sure why this is the most... Uh, iconic or popular or considered best scene in the film. I actually think it's like um, the weakest scene in the film. It felt like it felt to me. I love the staging around it that you mentioned, like the yeah, way like that the way they he film. walks in and it's this far yeah. shot and got this giant empty room with just a chair in the middle. And he's yeah. forced to sit on it with the, the lighting, the silhouette. That's beautiful. But the actual montage is just like, it's just like, what is this? The, um the way, the the imposing nature and the smallness of him of of him in the room it it reminded me of um it was it has the same vibe as uh as the ned beauty sequence in network of you know someone coming oh, into sure. a great a, a place of of great imposing power but then the sequence itself i kind of wish it made me wish that they'd hired an actual um experimental filmmaker or like someone who kind of knew what they were doing a little bit more because i think compared to those other sequences you mentioned it's a little bit long. It's repetitive in a way that is not particularly interesting. Right. Well, the uh, reason why and- I wanted to mention it now, Simon, is because one of our questions coming up is what would you change? And I would change the actual slideshow, well, like the montage itself. Yeah, let's let's just so we can segue right into that question. So, I mean, the slideshow, there's a couple of things like it is too long. It does tell a story, so it's fine in that sense. Like I get what it's doing. I get what the what the the three acts of the montage are. Okay, but um, can you explain it then? Because like, what is it? It's it's about sure. the values of family and and. I, I watched really closely the second time because I wanted to know exactly what it was going. For. The first time I was just sort of watching. I was like, "What the hell is happening?" Before you answer, um, my takeaway was it represents the mental state of most Americans at that point in time in the seventies. Yeah, I think it that that that's exactly what they're going for. Sort of the degradation, and so what it's going for is what America used to stand for. Because when the the thing first starts out, it starts equating love with images that you recognize as being love. It starts equating family with images of families. It equates, uh, you know, me with images, of, wholesome images of a of a kid and and of a guy working and people happy at their jobs and stuff like that. So it starts out like this is the American dream where everything seems right. These words make sense to us. When you get to the middle of the montage, the words don't make sense anymore. It starts conflating uh, love with Hitler and, you know, enemy with American flag and, uh, you know, showing all these and it equates mother with like this, these, you know, it, it does start to actually drop off. So I should say this. So it starts out where everything's perfect, right? Then it starts sort of getting into a, um, Everything's not terrible, but it's getting worse. So mother, instead of being this Donna Reed type homemaker, now all of a sudden it more it looks like she's more from the Great Depression. Uh, and father is working a plow instead of enjoying a cigar at his company, right? Um, 
things are getting worse. Then it starts conflating words with images. So it's switching around what the meanings are as if we are all confused. We, we don't know what is what anymore. We don't know what direction we're facing anymore. And then by the end, it looks to restore that. So it's almost like you're telling the, the, the recruit, you're frustrated right now. This is where we're at. We're looking to, you're Thor. That's why they keep saying Thor is me. It keeps it, me is Thor. I'm gonna save the world, I'm the superhero. Um, so it keeps cutting. Every time things are getting horrible, it'll cut to Thor and it'll say me. So, okay. So first of all, Thor was the wrong hero to use because Thor is a god. They could have chosen someone more like human-like, like Batman or something. Okay. That's just me, the comic book nerd talking. But the actual sequence itself, like like I said, I like the staging and like the way he enters. I like, I guess, the meaning behind it and what it represent, represents. I just wasn't a fan of the montage. So I would change that. Simon, it seems you would change make that change would you change it what would you change in the movie all right i'm not going to explain this i'm just going to say this is what i want it would have made the movie more enjoyable for me uh and i would have liked to have seen it and i'm not i don't even when you need to talk about it afterwards can i guess is it more monkeys playing pong no replace warren Beatty with elliot gould all right i'm done oh snap I can sort of see where you're coming from in that one, but I like Warbaiting in this movie. I think he does a good job. I don't hate him. I don't hate him. It's just to me, he's such, he's one of those guys who is so of his era and something about what people liked about him just doesn't quite reach me, you know? Oh, interesting. Because I, I, I love watching um, like Bonnie and Clyde. He's so good in that movie. He's Yes, yeah. He, he definitely has that it, right? Like there are everybody... there have been times I've been wowed by him. I wasn't quite wowed by him in this. Okay. No, I, I thought that his personality lent a lot towards me enjoying his character. Okay, so wait, you would change the I actor. I love him versus the cops. That scene with him in the in the, the police captain's office or whatever, his commanding officers, <laughs> that's great. Like, he's, to me, right there, he represented 70s anti-authority just to a T. Like, and he did it. I love him. In what this. would you change? Um, well, I I would definitely cut down the the montage sequence. There's no question about that. It goes on way too long. I can appreciate its story. Like I said, I can appreciate its story. And I understand what it's trying to do, and I paid close attention to it just out of curiosity. But that doesn't mean that I want to sit through that for five minutes every time I rewatch this movie. Yeah, I just can't believe Simon would change Warren Beatty. You know, Warren Beatty hasn't been in a lot of movies, so I would not want to take away a credit from his filmography. And not this yeah, specific well, I, film, I'm just saying. Out of the Warren 20, Beatty will be fine. Out of the 24 <laughs> films he made, there's a few movies I can like remove him from, not this one. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, all right, MVP, guys. Who's Gordon Willis. I'll just I'll just say Gordon Willis. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I talked about the cinematography for like an hour here, so I'm just gonna say Gordon Willis and move on. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard for me to go with him and Pakula. The staging is really good in this movie, and it's hard to tell like how much of the the composition of the shots was Gordon Willis and you know with Pakula. I'll go with Pakula just because um, I think the direction did have uh, something to do. It's it's some some pretty tight direction in this movie. Um, both of those guys, they're like they're like co MVPs to me. They work in concert together. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. He directed the trilogy, but he worked with the same cinematographer. So, 
I, I feel like we have to give the award to the two of them, or I do. I have to give the award to the two of them. Like, I need, I need the pairing. Like, I think if you remove the director of cinematographer, you don't have the same kind of movie. Yeah, I think in this particular case, I think the staging and the composition had a. They're really complimenting each other on how this movie looks and plays out. So it's yeah, hard but for I, me to separate. I, I think I don't know. For me, it's an easy call. Like if 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 the movie doesn't look this way, mm-hmm. um, it it doesn't work. Yeah, because uh, a lot of the story has been is told through the visuals because the screenplay has Simon said an hour ago is bare bones. Yeah, that's what. But I just think I I don't know how much. It's, to me, it's not just the lighting, which of course would be the DP's. Yeah, it's, like, you're right. It's, 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 it's like framing. how much of the composition yeah. was Pakula involved in? You know, how much yeah. did he say, "Hey, I need a shot that does this," and then you just, you know, you know what? I'm actually going to agree with Patrick because I was reading uh, an interview with uh, Pakula, or was it Willis? I can't remember, but they were saying that he specifically asked the cinematographer for the look of the film, and he wanted sort of like a comic book look, like he wanted it to look like the frame of a comic book which is why it's very flat and why he plays with the uh, the focus a lot. And you're probably right, uh, Patrick, because, yeah, I'm not – and see, when, when when you say cinematographer, like, you're really talking about the guy who lights the film, not necessarily the guy who stages it, decides how the, how it's going to be – how the shots are going to be composed, where the he actor He does not who, stage it. It's he, the director. He may, he may do some composition to sort of perfect what the director has in mind, but lighting is really his big – Point of yeah it's just that there are a lot of cinematographers who are also the dudes that hold the camera and position the camera and move the camera and do their like steady cam and you know yes not in this case though in this case i really do think you're right i do i do think we should give it to pakula uh, and it is a trilogy right so it's not like he just directed us one amazing movie and all of his all of the other films he's ever directed were terrible and or you know what i mean like like i mean clute's an amazing movie the president's men is an amazing movie this is an amazing movie. Like, you know, it's not, it's not a coincidence. No. It's got a track record. No, and he's been involved with some other pretty decent movies too. Um... Speaking of Pakula, just really quickly before we move on to the next, um, the next uh, question, I've only seen four of his films. They all happen to be political thrillers. Now, wait, which movies did you okay, see? Okay, so The Pelican Brief. Yep. Clute. Parallax View. All the President's Men. Okay. Oh, okay. I did see Sophie's Choice, but that was so long ago I don't remember it. And I did. I, see I think for... he only wrote that though. Uh, I mean, looking no, I looking at his career, or something. he his kind of thing was just sort of generally, um, like ac- ac- accessible movies for adults. Basically, um, that's kind of the through line of his oh, of no. his career. He did direct Sophie's yeah, Choice. You know, yeah, you know, you know a movie he directed I oh. never watched, which you would think I did watch presumed innocent with harrison ford there there's a conspiracy one that's like a hitchcocky movie uh yeah, the devil's own know. is sort of a political thriller because well, I, I remember that being profoundly mediocre it, it is very much so yeah that was unfortunately that was my first exposure to him <laughs> it was not not what i was hoping for in a movie with brad pitt and harrison ford back in that wait day. wait which movie are you talking about the devil's own oh that's not a good movie you're right i no. saw that one too no, no, not a great last note to go out on. But he well. still, it it did like sort of stick with his theme. Um, yeah, know. but I mean, I, I I looking at looking at the movies that he sort of switched to doing in the nineties, like I think he kind of switched over to being like uh like a a guy who just kind of makes middle brow movies for whoever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny because a, a lot of his films have had 
Academy Award nominations, but not this one that we're talking about today. Like it did And not... I can see why. This isn't necessarily an Academy Award, you know, worthy movie. This is what I would call a really, really like solid genre movie. It's it's yeah. a, it's there's nothing that it doesn't need to be awarded. There's not a great performance yes, that stands but out. You say that, Patrick, but this is 1974. It's one of the high points of new American cinema, the brief decade when American films were like challenging the art form. And what won an Oscar back then? Midnight Cowboy, one of the movies that was part of the new American cinema movement. And mm-hmm. uh, Fonda won, won Best Actress for Clute as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. She won for that movie, which was filmed before, and this is part of the trilogy. Bam. Yeah, and I can see, I, I can see why. I don't think there's anything in this movie, that, and it's not a knock on the movie at all. I mean, this is a great piece of entertainment. And and, uh, and come on, Warren Beatty is not doing best actor work here. No, no, he's not, and and none of the actors are here. Um, none of the actors are doing supporting actor work that that's off the charts or anything like that. They're they're just all really solid. I still it, think it, it, he has that it factor, like Patrick said. Like he oh, is yeah. a star. Yeah. Like yeah. He's fun to watch, and you do need someone who's who's fun to watch in that role because the character doesn't like. Really, there's only one scene that I think we should mention where we kind of get maybe some backstory, where he sort of invents uh, this story of uh, he he has to come up with a new alias, and oh, he mentions yeah. this story about being uh, naked and blacking out and and having this baseline paranoia, and you kind of get the sense that yeah, this is not a total invention. <laughs> I mean, that was part of the conversation that he'd had with the guy when he made his IDs up. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure where he's pulling that from. But you remember when he talked to the ex-FBI, the, the non-ex-FBI agent who had been erased from even being an ex-FBI agent? Um, that guy told him that it would be good if he was a flasher, like his, his new identity was a, was a flasher, so that it would give him a reason to have changed That's his true. name. That's so, true. Maybe I'm reading into things, but I still think – because they, they also talk about him having previously been a lush – quite a few times yes so you get that and then you get a glimpse of his relationship with the reporter and it clearly it's, like none of it is very good no <laughs> um now is a point on the podcast where i have to talk about the taglines because i'm all about the marketing of the film nice. so great taglines guys okay so first of all number one assassination try to see it from their point of view <laughs> i like nice. it i like there it there we go and there is no conspiracy just 12 people dead Ah, that's really good. <laughs> I like that one. That's I'm they, voting they don't for that make taglines like they used to. Mm-hmm. All right, so we did MVP Howard Hawks test. Does this pass the great movie test of three great scenes, but no bad ones? What do you guys think? I, th- I mean, I, th- I, th- I, th- I, th- I think so. Yeah, I'm going to say yes because although I would prefer that they gave us a shorter, more experimental montage sequence, I still think it's a great scene. I don't think there's any bad scenes. You can like laugh at the car chase or the bar sequence, but I. Still... I was gonna say the car chase in particular is the closest I think we come to a bad. But scene. I wouldn't call it a bad scene. It doesn't. It's not that it's a bad scene. It feels out of place. Yeah, in the it movie. feels very. Out. I mean, it, but I yeah, I kind of like the fact that there's parts of the movie that feel like they're imported from a different movie. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't make a ton of sense. And there's so many smarter things. You were talking about him doing bumbling. Like, him stealing that car was bumbling. All he had to do was drop out the window of that house and then just hide. Nobody would ever, you know, caught him or suspected anything. Um, wait, till the, wait till the deputy leaves. I, I actually think, low-key, the goofiest moment in this whole movie is when, um, is when he crashes the car, gets out, 
runs out through the back of the building and there just happens to be a big old truck yeah. just like sauntering along at a pace that he can run and hop in the back of. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's all like staged fine, directed fine. It just doesn't fit with the this type of movie though. Like he, yeah. he shouldn't be getting that lucky or being that daring, I suppose. Yeah. But again, it does kind of... I, I kind of like what it does for the movie, though, like I said before, where he's kind of on these plucky adventures, getting out of all these scrapes with all these lucky coincidences, and none of it is helpful. I mean, movie. that was like the opening to Indiana Jones, or Raiders of the Lost Yeah, Dawn. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could he have gotten more lucky? <laughs> um, all right, so I, I think that works. Like I said, it's the closest there is to a bad scene. I would also would not call it bad. It, it just doesn't belong here. Um. I, so as far as what this, whether or not this movie is going to stand up, I kind of already thought, I, I sort of answered that question already myself. I think it does stand up. I think because it keeps things so general. I think this is a movie that if people discovered it now, they would absolutely love. I think it's a super, it's an entertaining kind of popcorn thriller that's got just enough little depth and nuance and detail in it to to make an impact and not just fade away like so many other movies do. Well, and I and I think its version of of a conspiracy thriller and its version of paranoia is still relevant today, unlike maybe some other films. Not just because it's general or whatever, but because it's locating something where, um, you know, in a movie like uh, I'm trying to think of a recent conspiracy, like uh, Dark Waters, the Mark Ruffalo movie, mm -hmm. like there is a specific historical conspiracy that you can track, and there's specific information. Mm -hmm. But here, it's like. Um, it's it feels very contemporary because we're in this moment where the thing that makes that's really freaking people out is is that truth has lost uh, its its uh, its authority. We're in this sort of post truth zone and there is no truth and there is nothing we can specifically locate to explain to explain our existence. And I think that this movie taps into that uh, very nicely, even though it's not from the same era. No, I think it's it taps into the the natural and a fear that will always exist or a suspicion that always exists of power of people in power, people that are in the shadows that are, that are pulling strings. This is something that will never, ever, ever go away. Not until we get every last sicko, <laughs> which will never happen. So, no, it'll never happen. So this, that, that feeling of suspicion will, will always be there. And I think that it can always play for that. What about you, Rick? Do you think this, this thing has legs. Do you think it appeals to a modern audience in its filmmaking sensibilities? Oh, man, I hate this question. I don't really care what modern audiences want in their movies. They're too busy watching YouTube videos. This <laughs> okay. is how we keep movies alive, though. Like, we need these movies to appeal to people. Can they appeal to people still? You know, you probably can watch the Parallax View on YouTube. No, you can't. You I actually checked because I rented it on YouTube. <laughs> um, it's on Amazon. No, not in Canada. It. See, that's the oh, thing. Okay, I thought I was going to watch it for free. I thought I would watch it on Amazon Prime. No, nope, I had to rent it. Oh, damn. Yeah, no, it's it's free on Prime here. The thing that bugs me about renting movies, I would prefer to just buy the DVD or Blu-ray because then I could just watch it again in the future, but I wouldn't have time. Like, I was thinking, like, if I order it, it's not going to come in time for me to do the podcast. Like, mm. but anyways, um, 
I mean, look, if you're a movie buff, like I say this every week, if you love movies, if you're a film student, if you're whatever, trying to learn the craft, you're you're going to like sit down and you're going to enjoy this movie. There's there's so much to enjoy. There is great performances. There's, uh, you know, from the supporting cast, like you can make fun of Warren Beatty all you want. Simon, the supporting cast is fantastic. And I don't oh, think yeah. we talked about them because we don't really know any of these actors except for maybe the editor in chief. He's appeared in a bunch of movies that I know of. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the look of the film, the soundtrack. Um, it's just it's a really slick stylish moody film uh this the score the soundtrack reminds me a lot of david shire's work the mm. actual film itself i mean when you think of the 70s you think of movies like the conversation one you know one of the greatest movies ever made you think of uh, all of these political thr- thrillers that came out like chinatown roman polanski's chinatown like i personally think the 70s was the greatest decade of of american movie making ever like I know we get more movies now, like in, in the 2000s, but I think that the quality of great movies, like the ratio of great movies versus like bad or good movies that were made in the 70s, they were just like, like the batting average was so high. You know what I mean? Like look at like the horror films, the, the, the thrillers, the dramas. I love American movies from the 70s. It's my favorite decade when it comes to American films. So to me, this is like, I mean... It's weird because I I would like I would love to sit down right now and make a list of my hundred favorite movies from the seventies, and I'm pretty sure this would not even come close to making the list. But like I said, if it comes down to political thrillers, this has gotta be on the list of one of the all time greats. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. No question about it. And I think um, that if you watch Clutes, a lot of people are gonna love that movie. Like I think it only makes sense to watch the entire trilogy. Yeah, if you're into one of these movies, you're going to be into all of them. And that's that's kind of the thing. And hopefully, you know, a movie like this, just being available free on Prime, um, can hopefully expose people to the, the, the glut of 70s conspiracy movies that are out there. Uh, if they haven't seen Chinatown, which I think is currently playing on Netflix, Chinatown plays every now and again on both things. And I would just say also, if you're one of the, like, five people listening to this who hasn't already watched the movie, um, hey hey dudes um it's we've described the movie as being very grim and downbeat and uh and pessimistic or whatever and it it is all those things but thankfully it's also fun to watch somehow which i think is a very crucial uh, bit of balance that it gets right Mm -hmm. it has it's not a hitchcock movie but it has that 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 spirit it's not a hitchcock movie it only ends like a hitchcock movie well Yeah. And opens like one. <laughs> and it, But it has that spirit of fun where Hitchcock took grim subjects and still like Notorious is terrible. If you think about what's actually happening in that movie. Uh, all right. One shot. Well, Rick, instead of like, I know you hate this question, but you do like, what is the one shot that we haven't brought up that you're going to remember from this movie? One shot or di- line of dialogue? Wow. That we haven't yet mentioned? That we haven't mentioned yet. There's lots of great shots in this movie. I'll tell you what. I'll go first. Is like a little detail that for for that I love. I love the at the at the end the sort of crow's nest shot, bird's eye shot down below of all the tables which are done in red, white, and blue as the senator has been shot and he's on his little golf cart and the cart just starts swerving and starts crashing into tables and he just holds on that shot for a long time as you watch this cart just hit tables, hit tables, and then kind of roll to a stop. 
Uh, I love the little detail like that. It could have just been a shot. He, he gets shot, and then the golf cart stops. But instead, he just lets it kind of go for a little while. And whoever was on that cart, I think of how much fun that guy must have had just, like, crashing into stuff. And then they had to go well, re- reset that up every time they wanted to redo that shot. <laughs> and, and this will count as the thing that I'll say, I love the way, and it's it's not subtle, but it's still great, the way the speech drones on after he's dead. Um, oh, yeah. because there's because the recording is playing in the background is yep. just wow i mean let's not forget <laughs> the greatest line in the movie they say a martini is like a woman's breast one ain't enough and three is too many his three response to many. that is great <laughs> have you seen total recall who wrote the screenplay <laughs> well no, it was um, clearly before they didn't know what they were missing rick that's the problem <laughs> I don't know. I, I still think like, I mean, I, I really do think I've already mentioned all my favorite shots, but um, I, I do find it funny that at one point in time, Warren Beatty's character, he says, don't touch me unless you love me. So bizarre. Everything. He's, he's such a smart ass in that bar scene. That line is also in Showgirls. I'm just going to point that out. <laughs> I don't think I could have recalled a line from Showgirls. So you got me there, Simon. Um... Clearly, you have not watched Showgirls enough times. No, I haven't seen it enough. Uh, what? I think I've seen it twice. Oh, that's not enough times. Same but it was times. all, both of them were back when it first came out on video, so I don't really remember anything. Oh, definitely that. watch Showgirls. Everyone, uh, the, I, you can't find me on the internet. The last thing I want to say is go watch Showgirls. <laughs> all right. Um, on that note, we should probably wrap things up. Uh, Simon, I'm assuming you your internet status has not changed. Is that correct? Go watch Showgirls. Okay. Mine has not at all either. Um, I'm not going to say go watch Showgirls. I'm going to say go watch Babe Pig in the City because we're going to be talking about that one fairly soon if when my choices come back around. Hey. Um, I'm going to go complete opposite of Showgirls. <laughs> Rick, where can we find? Where can people find the podcast and the website uh, and you online? So you can find the podcast over at SortedCinema.com, which is interconnected with GoombaStomp.com. Um, the Twitter handle is Sorted Cinema. Basically, Sorted Cinema, the podcast, is available to listen to just about everywhere from iTunes to YouTube to Amazon to Spotify to you name it. So I guess that's about it. It's really SortedCinema.com, and you can find all the links to all of the archive. Like, yeah, I don't really know what else to say. Yeah, and you've been throwing up a lot of older um shows as well or at least segments so from older we've shows. recorded over 578 episodes now i think we're on 579 i've lost count but um anything past 500 is available online any episode prior to 500 what i'm doing is i every now and then slowly re-upload specific reviews like super 8 et uh, you know, because anniversaries pop up here and there, right? So, like, if there's a reason for me to re-upload a review, like it's an anniversary, the film's getting remade, there's a sequel, I don't know, whatever, I try to upload it, and I usually do put it in the feed, and it also goes on YouTube. So, yeah. All right. That'll wrap things up. Uh, do we know what we're doing next week? Okay. All right. It'll be a mystery. Surprise movie next week. We will see you guys then. Why are you here this time? I told you, somebody's trying to kill me. Oh, Jesus. Somehow I don't think I should be looking at this. Just look. What? Oh, come on, I looked at this now. I was blue in the face three years ago.
Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. Four. Look, nobody's trying to kill you, huh? These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin Tucker thinks so, too. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. Yeah, well, we did see something up there, didn't we? No, I mean something else. Well, what do you mean by something else? Does he ever indicate what he means by that? Has he ever indicated to you that he saw anything other than what was in the commission report? No. Nothing? No. Did you see anything up there? No. Well, neither did I. And believe me, I looked. We all looked. You mean if you didn't see it, it's not there? Well, I didn't say that. It's just that I know all about these accidents. Ralph Scaletta was a known lush. He hit a piling on the George Washington Bridge. He killed three other people with him. Joy Holder died of anaphylactic shock when the doctor gave her the wrong antibiotic. Herbert Moon burned himself up in bed smoking, which his girlfriend always told him he was going to do, and Harry Lutz had a heart attack. Harry Lutz was 40 years old. It's too young to have a heart attack. Oh, it's not. He was thin. He was in oh, terrific bullshit. He condition. He found out his wife was banging her psychiatrist, and on the same day, a bulldozer accidentally knocked over half his house. Come on, he was lucky to last that long. That's future, Shockley. <laughs>